Um, let's read, and then we'll pray, and then we'll dive into the message this morning. I'm going to begin reading, well, we're just going to read Acts chapter 8. Make it simple. We'll read Acts chapter 8, beginning at verse 1. The point of what we are saying is this. We do have such a high priest who sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven and who serves in the sanctuary, the true tabernacle set up by the Lord, not by man. Every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. And so it was necessary for this one also to have something to offer. If he were on earth, he would not be a priest, for there are already men who offer the gifts prescribed by the law. They serve at a sanctuary that is a copy and a shadow of what is in heaven. And this is why Moses was warned when he was about to build the tabernacle, see to it that you make everything according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. But the ministry Jesus has received is as superior to theirs as the covenant of which he is mediator is superior to the old one. And it is founded on better promises. For if there had been nothing wrong with that first covenant, no place would have been sought for another. But God found fault with the people and said, the time is coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their forefathers when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they did not remain faithful to my covenant and I turned away from them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will a man teach his neighbor or a man his brother saying, know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest. For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. By calling this covenant new, he has made the first one obsolete. And what is obsolete and aging will soon disappear. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Father, would you help us to understand and apply this text of scripture that we have read. Father, we believe that your word is inspired and we believe that in the autographs it was inerrant and we believe it is authoritative. We believe, God, that more than anything else, really, it reveals you to us and reveals ourselves to us. It guides us, Lord, in the direction of knowing who you are and how to do life with you. So, God, would you help us in understanding and in applying this chapter, chapter 8, to our lives this morning. Be our teacher. Once again, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, well, uh, we've been looking now for some weeks at this book, the book of Hebrews. And we get to chapter 8. And I don't know if you noticed, but at the beginning of chapter 8, it, it's kind of a crescendo. The writer's been assembling this argument, and it's an argument about, an argument about Jesus' uniqueness. 
It's about Jesus' superiority. It's about Jesus being a better individual, a revealer of God's truth than the angels. Jesus being a better than the priests of Israel. Jesus being better than the kings of Israel. Jesus, we are told, is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of God's being. Those are incredible words. The exact representation of God's being. And the writer is building this argument and and right here in chapter eight, he says, the point of what we are saying is this. And that's a clue that the point of what we are saying is this. So this is a mini conclusion, not the conclusion, but everything has led up to this point. Here's a mini conclusion. This is what it's all been leading up to so far. So we want to look very carefully at what the writer says here. And we are going to do that in just a moment. But before we do, Let me kind of set the stage for what we'll be talking about as we look at this text. Because interestingly enough, the issues of that day are pretty much the same issues that we have today. Go figure. (laughs) Nothing new under the sun. Uh, Let me illustrate. There was many years ago, I read a book. This is like 2006 or something. It was written by a guy, some of you have heard of, Richard Dawkins. It was called The God Delusion. It was very popular at the time. And and in that book, he asserted a lot of things. One of the things he asserted is that religion is really bad for people, bad for culture, bad for society, bad for individuals. Uh, he, He said that religions are divisive. Religions are always us versus them, the saved versus the unsaved, the morally, uh, you know, uh, well, he called it morally oppressive. He, he said, because we, we believe that certain things are right and certain things are wrong, we will say to ourselves and to others, what you're doing is wrong. And he felt that was oppressive. He said, too, that religion causes more wars than any other single force on earth. And we could debate that. There's some truth to that. There have been wars in the name of religions. Uh, And today I would even add to what he said way back then. I would say today that our culture would probably say religion is, of course, homophobic, maybe sexophobic, uh, or certainly racist and intolerant and unloving with all of its rules and regulations and do's and don'ts and eternal rewards and eternal punishments. Our culture would probably say religion in general and our culture being Western, uh, the, the Western culture that it is, would probably say Christianity in particular is all just very, very, very off-putting at the least and probably just a very bad social influence. Now, ironically, the book of Hebrews argues that Jesus did not come to set up a new or even a better religion. It's not the argument of this book. Uh, The argument of this book is that Jesus actually came to end religion. And I hope to make that clearer as, as we dig a little deeper. You see, that's the argument of this book. The writer says that to embrace Jesus, to put your faith in Jesus, is to move away from religion altogether. In fact, Jesus came to be the death of religion. Just kind of log that and keep that in the back of your mind. Religion, we need probably need to define it. A religion is basically the inclination of men and women to do or not do certain things to gain approval, to gain acceptance, to gain assistance of the gods. Or if you're talking the Judeo-Christian God of God himself, that's the heart of religion. 
That's really the point of all this high priest talk here in Hebrews chapter 8. The point, he says, of what we are saying is this. We do have such a high priest who sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven and who serves in the sanctuary, the true tabernacle set up by the Lord, not by man. Now understand, any, any Jewish person receiving this letter, reading these words, would have been struck by the description that the writer of Hebrews just gave regarding this high priest, Jesus. Because this priest, we are told, is sitting. I don't know if you picked up on that. It says he is sitting at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. Almighty God in heaven. Now, that's a position, understand, the right hand, that's a position of authority. That is a position that, that kings and rulers and co-regents occupy. The person who sat at the right hand of the throne was often, very often also a co-regent. Now we've talked about this before, you, you'll remember. In the Old Testament, you never have a priest uh, who is also a king or a ruler. Just like you never have a ruler who is also a priest. This never happens. It's too much power consolidated in one individual. The reason too being that these two offices, priest and king, are quite opposite of one another. I've said in the past that a ruler, a king, represents God to the people. It in fact, enforces the law of God uh, in the lives of the people. Whereas a priest, on the other hand, represents the people to God pleads for mercy. A priest offers prayers. A priest lights incense. A priest offers sacrifice. So you never see these two offices combine <clears throat> in one person. Now, the only exception to this that we have uh, in the Bible is Genesis 14. And we've looked at this before. This is about Melchizedek, of course. We discussed this when we looked at chapter 7 in Hebrews. The writer of Hebrews makes this big argument that Jesus is a different kind of priest. That's what we read a moment ago. He's not a priest like Aaron and Aaron's descendants who were all of the tribe of Levi. Jesus, of course, comes out of the tribe of Judah, not a priestly tribe. Jesus, we are told, is a priest after the order of Melchizedek, not the order of Levi. Uh, Melchizedek, we know in Genesis chapter 14, uh, was a king and a priest, oddly enough. He ruled, we are told, forever. There's no recorded beginning to his reign or end to his reign. And because Jesus is a priest after the order of Melchizedek, that makes Jesus both king and priest forever, and it makes Jesus unique. His priesthood is of a different order. Now, there's a second oddity about Jesus' priesthood that we're men that's mentioned here in uh, chapter 8, verse 1. It says he's seated. Now, that would have jumped out at anybody back then in that day reading this text. Because no priest is ever seated. Priests are always busy doing what needs to be done. And there's a lot that needs to be done for you, for me. Right? Prayers need to be offered. Sacrifices need to be made. Incense needs to be burned. Holy scriptures need to be read and taught. And so why? Well, because this is what religion requires. Especially man-made religions. 
And here's the thing, sadly, the faith and the religious practice of Israel always kind of flowed downhill in this direction, away from faith, away from grace, away from an understanding of God's mercy toward the notion that their practice of religion, that is their prayers, their sacrifices, their ceremonies and religious rituals would get God to do or not do something they wanted him to do or not do. That those things which they performed, they would gain God's approval. They would get God's acceptance. They would grab God's attention and they would secure God's assistance. And that kind of thinking is religious thinking. That's what Jesus encountered in the first century when he came and began to do business with scribes and teachers of the law and Pharisees many of whom thought that their activities in serving God and teaching the people secured for them a place in God's family, God's kingdom, God's heaven, if you will. It was a performance-based kind of religion by that time. And uh, the fact of the matter is, even though there are many different kinds of religion, there are certain things about all religions that are sort of in common among them. For example, all religions believe that behind this reality, what we see, feel, taste, touch, and so there's another reality. Religions talk about <clears throat> some kind of other reality, some ultimate reality, a spiritual world, if you will. And in that spiritual world that's described often many different ways, there's a, there's a force, there's a deity, there's a transcendent reality that can't be reduced to just empirical, natural, materialistic, scientific factors or causes. It's an ultimate reality behind this reality. All religions embrace some form of this belief. Something else that all religions believe is that there is some kind of gap between us and that ultimate reality. And this gap needs to be bridged somehow, some way. Or to put it another way, there, there are some barriers that need to be overcome. And the idea here is that we are not connected the way we should be. We need some kind of mediation to get us from here connected to up there or wherever there is. We need something to bridge the gap and overcome the barrier and create the connection with the deity or the ultimate reality or the life force, whatever it is, that for some reason is frankly just outside our reach. And these ideas are nearly universal in religions. I mean, they have many different specific expressions, but these general ideas. But as to how we create the connection with that ultimate reality, that's where religion, religions begin to differ. One religion will say, you know what? We mediate the gap through sacrifices. That would have been Israel. We, we, we bridge the gap through sacrifice and the shedding of blood. Another might say we mediate the gap through special secret knowledge. You've heard of something called Gnosticism in the uh, early centuries of the church. This was a belief that if you could just grasp and gain and get a hold of certain knowledge, that would be the key to bridge this gap to ultimate reality. And of course, that became a view. There was even Christian Gnosticism that was condemned because uh, it, it flew directly uh, in the face of the gospel. We're, we'll get to that more in a moment. Another religion will say, no, you know, it, it's through strict moral adherence to these codes, to these laws, or strict personal practices of self-denial that you bridge the gap. 
Another religion will say, well, it's, it, it's through special prayers or forms of meditation or strict asceticism or religious ritual that you bridge the gap. Another might say the ultimate or divine, it's already within you. You already possess it. You just need enlightenment. You just need to know how to tap into it. There are all kinds of expressions of religion on bridging this thing, this gap. That's religion. There's an ultimate transcendent reality, a God or gods, a force or life spirit, an energy, and we just need to connect with that ultimate reality. But for some reason, there is this gap. And we have got to do certain things or not do certain things to bridge the gap. Are you with me so far? Are you thinking just get on with it? Is that what you're thinking? <laughs> I will. Now, sadly, again, Israel often let their practice of the faith that they had received become kind of a performance-based religion. That's what had happened by Jesus' time. And this is always a problem in any community that's relating to God, even the true God. We tend to want to make a religion out of our practice of faith. Now, fast forward to the present here in our Western culture. Let's talk about that for just a moment. Here in our Western culture, many will say, okay, uh, yeah, that's religion. And certainly ancient peoples were very, very religious. Got it. But we're not that way today. I mean, we're modern people. Come on. We don't need a God explanation for everything. everything. We believe that everything that happens can be explained scientifically or it can be explained naturally. And if not yet, it will be soon, Right. There's no ultimate reality, no transcendent being, no God or gods or spiritual life force uh, behind all of this. It's just this. Nor is there any ultimate right or wrong or unchangeable truth to which we will all be held accountable. Those are just religious notions. But truth be told, we struggle to live in that space as modern folks. We really do. In fact, I would say we can't. So you see, while the Western civilization runs from traditional religion, which I think it is doing, it's actually been creating a new religion around things like science and physics and natural law. And it's a very naive religion. It's a religion full of faith and full of trust to believe things that aren't likely ever going to happen. I, I would say uh, naively, we believe, for example, that one day our problems, the problem of death or a short lifespan, the problem of who we really are, our identity, the problem of morality, what's right or what's wrong, the problem of things like poverty or global warming or injustice, things like that will one day get solved scientifically. Yay! Oh! I feel better. <laughs> but here's the problem. We've been worshiping at that altar long enough now to realize that that hasn't been happening, <laughs> getting these things fixed. And stuff like truth and love and justice and good and beauty a human being's identity, meaning, significance, purpose, deep, deep longings of the human heart are not going to be explained or found in natural law or science. Now, don't get me wrong. Natural law and science are great, 
They make better cars and refrigerators and rockets and, and someday will get us maybe living on the moon or Mars. Uh, don't get me wrong, great stuff. But science is not delivering up truth and love and beauty and justice. Nor is science going to fix things like evil or hatred or injustice, all the ugliness in the world and in here, in us. Friends, our Western culture has been and is wrestling with the reality that if you explain everything away, if you say there is no God, there's no ultimate reality behind this reality, there's no transcendent truth, there's no moral uh, reality grounded in the being of almighty God himself, there's just science, there's just natural law, there's just here and now. Well, then eventually you explain away everything that matters. Everything. This is part of what the apostle Paul was getting at so long ago when he said, although they, they claimed to be wise, they became fools. And they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for silly things, silly things, like refrigerators and rockets and better cars, things that we can create, things that we can make. You know, C.S. Lewis warned us about this a whole long time ago in a book called The Abolition of Man. He was writing about the problem of, yes, science discovers many things, knows many things, natural law, all good, all great, all there. But, but if we use these things to explain away the things that are most important, what does it leave us with? He wrote these words. He says, you cannot go on explaining away forever or you will find that you've explained explanation itself away. You cannot go on seeing through everything forever. The whole point of seeing through something is to see something else through it. It's good that you can see through a window, but that's only because the garden beyond is opaque. You can't see through that garden. But if you could see through everything, well, then everything would be transparent and a wholly transparent world would be an invisible world. So to see through all things would be the same as not to see. Did that clear it up for you pretty well right there? Is that clear now? So the way this spins out, if we're to apply what C.S. Lewis is observing, take a, take a German philosopher, one you've heard of, like Nietzsche, Frederick Nietzsche. Nietzsche said that all claims, all claims, all statements about transcendent truth and God and stuff like that, they're all really just power plays, plays for grabbing and holding on to power. Well, okay. I think Nietzsche is making a claim about truth and God there, isn't he? So that would be a power play according to his definition. And that would invalidate his own claim, I think. So we shouldn't pay a bit of attention to Nietzsche. He explains away his own explanation, does he not? Or how about this? Maybe you're more into psychology. So let's talk about Sigmund for a moment, Sigmund Freud. Sigmund Freud says that all claims of absolute truth, all claims that human beings make about God are really just psychological projections coming out of our personal guilt and insecurity. Well, I think that's a truth claim that he just made. 
that according to Freud would be just therefore <clears throat> a psychological projection coming out of his own guilt and his own insecurity. So we don't have to pay much attention to that either. Freud has explained away his own expl explanation. Are you still with me? Okay. One more. Evolutionary biologists. They would say that your brain thinks that there's a God or thinks that there might be something like absolute truth or a certain moral fiber to our cosmos. But really, that's just, that's just a hardwired chemical response in your brain designed to pass on your genetic code. Okay. Well, if that's true then what their brain is telling them about evolution and natural selection is also just a hardwired chemical response designed to pass on their genetic code. So why should I care? And why should I listen? And here's the point. Don't you want me to get to the point? <laughs> I can tell you do. Here's the point. We claim to be wise and we become fools. We think we see through everything, but in the process, we see nothing correctly, nothing as it really is. To explain away everything is to explain away explanation. And believe me, Western modern man feels this dilemma very deeply. And sad as this is, it's actually a really good thing. It's actually a really good thing. It demonstrates that not even our self-made religions in the Western world of science and you know, natural law and physics and things of this nature, not even these things are giving us, you see, the answers and the hope and the identity and the truth that we long for as human beings. And honestly, I think it makes us ready for the antidote to religion, which is Jesus. And believe me, our culture needs an antidote to religion. Uh, our own foolish secularism is prepping us actually for the gospel, I think, <laughs> for Jesus. Now, remember earlier I said Jesus came to put to death religion of every kind. And the writer of Hebrews says that Jesus, our high priest, is not a high priest or a prophet or a king like any other. So he's not bringing us a new religion. He's a high priest who's entirely different. Here's, what, here's the way he's different. Our Jesus is a high priest who is God. Our Jesus is a high priest who is ultimate reality itself. Our Jesus is the transcendent who has become the imminent. He came from up there down to here. I don't know if you remember back in Hebrews chapter one, but it, it, we read these words. This is verse two and three. It says, but in the last days, he, God, has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he made the universe. There's the Bible's explanation for where it all came from, Jesus. You can laugh, but I would submit to you that any scientific or natural law or uh, 
explanation that comes out of physics, <laughs> it sounds even sillier to me than to say that Jesus made it. You see, Jesus made the universe. The sun, he says, is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful world. word. You see, Jesus is the ultimate reality behind this reality. Do you see and feel how different that is from all other world religions? Nobody has ever said that before. Before that was said, nobody had ever said it. Nobody who could actually back it up. You see, Jesus in, his, in coming to this, this world and living in it and in teaching and in performing miracles and in healing and in doing signs and wonders, he actually backed up his claim to be God himself. Every other religion, you see, um, talks about bridging this gap. Certain things you do or don't do in order to bridge the gap. Jesus, however, is the one who comes, according to the Bible, to bridge the gap. Uh, the Apostle Paul talked about this in Colossians. He says, once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. There's the gap. There's a gap between us and ultimate reality. Paul says, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present, your, to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. You see, every other religion, as I said, says, do this, don't do that, give this, live this way, sacrifice this, experience this, and that will get you over the gap to God or to that ultimate reality. But Jesus says, no. I am the God who crosses over the gap to get you. A gap that none of your efforts will ever bridge. And friends, this is why the writer of Hebrews says that Jesus is seated. This high priest is seated. He's seated because all the religious work is done. It is finished. Jesus finished it. Jesus is the final priest to end all priests. He's the king to end all kings. He's the sacrifice to end all sacrifices. His death was the death that ends all death. Christianity is the final end to all religion. Now let's talk for a moment about how Jesus did this. Because he did it through opening a new way, if you will. It's called a new covenant which meant a new kind of relationship with Almighty God, with that transcendent reality. Jesus opened a new covenant. What is a covenant? Glad you asked. Especially uh, this, this new covenant that's talked about in the passage we just read. In Hebrews chapter 8, verses 8 and 9, God says, I will make a new covenant, and it will not be like the covenant I made with their forefathers. Well, that's interesting. Again, what's a covenant? Well, we don't really have a good word in, in English that, that kind of fully gets this. It's, it's an equivalent word. Sometimes we talk about covenants being contracts. That gets part of it. That's okay, but that's only part of the idea. It's true that a covenant is a binding relationship, which a contract is a binding relationship. 
But a covenant was also a relationship with promises and a relationship with penalties. And often the penalties in Old Testament covenants, like the covenant God made with Adam or the covenant God made with Abraham or the covenant God made with with Noah or Moses or David and so, the penalties in those covenants could be any number of things. It could mean things like crop failure or your enemies coming and dragging you into captivity. Or it could mean your death if you broke the covenant. But understand, in the Old Testament covenants, these very serious binding penalties weren't really bad. They were actually something good. Let me explain. They were good in the sense that they they signified something very, very important. A relationship that had great significance and important. A relationship that was intimate. A relationship that was binding. And so the the covenant with God was both, on the one hand, totally binding, but it was also totally intimate and therefore totally important. And this is why the the idea of a contract doesn't quite get it, because while a contract is binding, it's not usually intimate. In fact, in our culture, we pit legally binding against intimacy. For example, how intimate is a prenuptial agreement? Not very. But in the Bible, the more intimate, the more delightful, the more personal a relationship, the more binding it is. And there's a reason for that. You see, the the covenants of the Old Testament kind of reflect a, a paradox, if you will, of relationship. This is something we all know about. Uh, You see, intimacy between two people is only attainable to the the degree that both people give up their personal freedom and they bind themselves to one another. Let me explain. If two people start a relationship, any kind of relationship, a friendship, a marriage relationship and everything in between. Yeah. If they say, okay, I will be what I should be to you in this relationship only to the degree that you are what I want you to be in this relationship. If that's the way that you start a relationship, it will always be cold. It will always be distant. It will always be guarded. At best, a business-like relationship, a transactional relationship. I will do this for you, but only if you do this for me. Neither person is willing to give up their independence, their personal freedom, their personal rights. They're not willing to die to self for the sake of another. And as long as you base a relationship on the other person's performance, how they treat you will determine how you treat them. You'll always be measuring. Are they being who I want them to be? Are they doing what I want them to do? And this is why traditionally in marriage, we bind ourselves to one another unconditionally. It's the point of our vows. This is Judeo-Christian thinking now, biblical thinking. Marriage is about unconditional commitment. I bind myself to you regardless in plenty and in want, in sickness and in health, as long as we both shall live, regardless of the circumstances. And in the most intimate of relationships, we first unconditionally bind ourselves to each other. Now, when we do that, we have no idea what we're getting ourselves into. Am I right? (laughs) You know, but that is what we're doing in the vows that we make. We're saying, I will be what I should be in this relationship, even if you are failing to be what you should be. We're saying, "I, I will put your needs before my needs. 
I'll bind myself to be caring toward you whenever you, whether you deserve it or not. Even at those moments where you don't deserve it. You see, that's the paradox of an intimate relationship. When I surrender my needs for your needs, when I choose to love you no matter what, suddenly we begin to experience real intimacy because one of us is laying down our lives for the other. And real love and real community, uh, you see, when I am willing to lay down my rights for you, that is the kind of relationship where intimate feelings can flourish and grow and deepen. That is love, sacrificial love. That's a relationship where we are safe. And that's the paradox of relationships. Our relationships go deeper and become more intimate the more we are willing to die in them. And that's covenantal relationship, friends. In the new covenant that God makes with us, this is what he says. This is Hebrews 8, 9. It will not be like the covenant I made with their forefathers when I took them by the hand and led them out of Egypt because they did not remain faithful to my covenant. And I turned away from them, declares the Lord. That's the old covenant being described. So there's this problem with the old covenant. It was somehow not complete. It was somehow not perfect. It was somehow conditional. It it depended too much somehow on Israel's faithfulness. And if you know anything about the history of Israel, you know they were never faithful. I mean, they were were stiff-necked. They were hard-hearted. They were adulterous. They were idolatrous. And so God being holy, it says here, had to turn away from them. And that right there is the curse of the covenant. God turning away, God having to separate himself from his sinful people, his unfaithful bride, so that he wouldn't destroy her. Something had to be done. If intimate relationship was going to be possible, a new covenant was needed. And in the new covenant, God said this. He said, I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. Verse 12. Do you see what God is saying there? In the new covenant, God is no longer seeing or remembering your sin or mine. The old covenant lacked intimacy. It was apparently too conditional. It didn't solve the problem of the gap. The problem of the gap is my sin, which separates me from God. But the new covenant is unconditional and therefore it's a place where intimate relationship can flourish. In the new covenant, God says, I will be faithful to you. I will be what I should be, even though you are not faithful to me. And you know what that cost him? On the cross, the father turned away from the son who was bearing your sin and mine. And on the cross, Jesus Christ was forsaken by the heavenly father and died. That's the covenant curse. Back in verse nine, I turned away from them, declares the Lord. You see, Jesus kept the covenant. He was perfectly obedient, but God the father turned his face away. Jesus got the covenant curse so that you and I could get the covenant blessing in the new covenant. sacrificial, unconditional love and forgiveness. And when you realize what Jesus did for you, you know, earlier I said, the more intimate a relationship is, the more compelling and binding it is. 
Friends, Jesus was nailed to a cross for you. That's how binding this covenant relationship is. And do you understand that this is why religion is over? All the doing is done. Jesus did it all for you. All the dying is over. Jesus died for you. He has unconditionally bound himself to you. And that means that the possibility for intimacy in this relationship, this new covenant relationship is astounding. The door is wide open for us to get to know him and love him and appreciate him better because Jesus is better. When you are in this new covenant relationship, it's not religion. It's not about what you can do for God. It's about what God has already done for you in Jesus and will keep doing for you. God continues to forgive, continues to communicate with us, listen to us, hear our prayers, continues to console and to convict and to strengthen and to encourage and to equip and to help you change and to give you a new identity, an identity rooted and grounded in who your maker made you to be. God continues to give you everything you need to battle and to succeed until one day you are with him in heaven for eternity. And he will never leave you or forsake you. He will never turn his back on you. In this new covenant relationship, there is intimacy, friends. Because you know his unconditional regard for you. And if you understand the new covenant, the gospel, it's no longer, you know, live this way and maybe God will accept you. Practice this religion and you just might get something you need or something you want from God. No, it's none of that. It's God accepts you fully because of Jesus. Period. So then the question is how do you want to live? You see, if that's all true, how do you want to live? And what becomes the motivating force or factor in our lives is love for Christ and gratitude for Christ. And that is a far more powerful engine of change than I better do this or I could get in trouble. You see the difference? Pray with me. Heavenly Father, we marvel at grace. Grace is something uh, we would have never thought of and could never have come up with. Instead, Father, in our religions, we come up with all kinds of ways and things and stuff to do or not do that we hope will gain your attention, your approval, get something from you that we think we need. Father, we thank you this morning that you in your son Jesus completely bridged the gap. We thank you that there's something more real than just the things we see and feel and taste and touch. We thank you that there's truth and there's beauty, that there's goodness and righteousness. We thank you, God, that there's uh, even uh, in, in, in the face of evil, there's, there's good and you embody that good. And we thank you, God, that your transcendent son became imminent. He came to earth to live among us to teach us, to die for us, to do everything 
that was needed to inaugurate a new covenant, a better covenant, one that depends wholly, entirely, and totally on you and you alone. Thank you for the gospel. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for this truth, this letter of Hebrews. Thank you, Father. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.